All right. Well, we're gathered here today to go over the Pilgrim's Progress. So, um, and this will be the uh, the second to last, I believe, uh, lesson. So that would be the the penultimate lesson. There's your word for the day. So write that one down. Our penultimate uh, teaching on the Pilgrim's Progress. I think we're ending next week. Um, I won't be here next week, so we'll see how that goes. Um, so we've been studying through the Pilgrim's Progress uh, for several months now, and uh, you know, Pilgrim's been on, on his journey and met lots of interesting people along the way. So um, my brother really likes the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, he called his place his little ranch that he has a Pilgrim's Place. So I, I, was, I like that name, the Pilgrim's Place, and I kind of wish I had thought of it for my place. We called ours the, the Long Lost Ranch. So, But uh, yeah, we're, we're with the Pilgrim's Progress, and we're all pilgrims sojourning together here along in our journey on our Christian walk. And uh, we're following along with uh, Pilgrim and all the people that he's met. I would say all his friends, but... Some of them weren't very good friends, so weren't friends at all. Um, so we get here to the Delectable Mountains. So um, who remembers when we last saw the Delectable Mountains in the Pilgrim's Progress? Where did Christians first see the Delectable Mountains? The answer is in your little uh, paragraph that you have that we're going to read here in a second. If someone's brave enough, brave enough to read it. But we've seen this place before, and actually it was described in quite a bit of detail, if you're reading in the book. I don't know if uh, whoever taught on, on this location expounded on this much, because it's, you know, some of these chapters are a little bit long. Anybody know? You got it, Andrew? You got this, the, the smirk. Uh, you know? was, it, was it when, uh, no. No. Just read the, read the little uh, section yes. down there. Would you like me to read it out loud? Yes, I would like someone to read it, and it will give you the answer. Okay. <laughs> when they were leaving the palace beautiful, then I saw in my dream that on the morrow he got up to go forward, but they desired him to stay till the next day also. And then, said they, we will, if the day be clear, show you the delectable mountains, which, they said, would yet further add to his comfort, because they were nearer the desired haven than the place where at present he was. So he consented and stayed. When the morning was up, they had him to the top of the house and bid him look south. So he did, and behold, at a great distance, he saw a most pleasant mountainous country, beautified with woods, vineyards, fruits of all sorts, flowers also with springs and fountains, very delectable to behold. Isaiah 33, 16 and 17. Then he asked the name of the country. They said it was Emmanuel's land. And it is as common, said they, as this hill is, to and for all the pilgrims. And when thou comest there from thence, said they, thou mayest see to the gate of the celestial city, as the shepherds that live there will make appear. All right, very good. I, uh, I thought you were going to recite Isaiah 33, 16, 17 from memory when we, when we hit that section. I'll leave that to Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll do that later. So you can see here, where, where was he when he saw the uh, Delectable Mountains? The Palace Beautiful. So you can write that down uh, there in your notes. 
And uh, I should have asked also what direction the Delectable Mountains was from the Palace Beautiful. So, um, yeah, to the south there. That would have been far. Or I could have said, where's the Palace Beautiful relative to the Delectable Mountains? Everyone went to the north. Okay, so uh, you see there that it was described, and he, was, he saw the Delectable Mountains. He gave us a little foretaste of it uh, when he was there at Palace Beautiful, which is kind of fitting um, because there's a lot of similarities between the Palace Beautiful uh, and the Delectable Mountains. What does, uh, anybody remember what the Palace Beautiful, this is just extra credit, uh, what it represents in Bunyan's thoughts, the Palace Beautiful beautiful palace. Represents this, the church. So where we're at right now, Bunyan, as we'll see in the Pilgrim's Progress, there's a couple of themes that are going to come out uh, very strongly in his thinking and the things that he really prized and really uh, um, helped him so much in his walk in the church, of course, meeting together in the church um, is a huge uh, part of our Christian life, and John Bunyan was was very keen on that. He wanted to emphasize that. Something I think, you know, is lost a little bit today in the Christian culture, um, just the idea of belonging to a church, and you see the, the mega churches that have come on the scene, and then you, the, the thing about the mega churches that you'll see is that, you know, people come and people go. There's so many people. It's very hard to break it down, so you can kind of just come and go, you know, sort of like you know, going to a movie or something. You just go in, get your sermon, and leave, and uh, and no one even knows that you're there, and you just kind of lose that connection that you have with the church, and the importance of the church is, I think, kind of takes takes a hit there because you don't have all the relationships, the accountability, uh, the togetherness, you know, the encouragement, and those things that, that we see are benefits of the church. So <clears throat> Christian has just come from where? Anybody remember? where he just left uh, as he gets to the Delectable Mountains. Where did he just come from? Yeah, the, uh, the Doubting Castle. And in the Doubting Castle, of course, we have the Giant Despair and his wife, Diffidence. Love these names. So if you guys uh, ever meet uh, a young lady named Diffidence, then it might not be the best sign in the world, but, you know, it might work out. Who knows? Um, so he was there from Wednesday evening to Saturday evening, which probably means something, knowing Bunyan. We'll talk about that a little bit. He found a key there, which was called Promise, and that key allowed him to escape the castle, and he was able to get out. And this, of course, was a lesson about what? Anybody know what that, the whole key thing and getting the key and getting out of the castle was a, a lesson? It's a lesson about, not thanks. Now everyone thinks that means thanks because of the emojis, but prayer, right? Uh, a lesson about prayer. And so, um, so he was there those few days, Wednesday to Saturday, which kind of makes me think of Christ's trial and his time of burial. You know, and of course, uh, Christ rose there on Sunday. Um, the, the events of that week, you know, depending on what you believe and how you work all that out, um, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, um, something like that. Um, he also might have been thinking of Paul and Silas who were released from prison at midnight, um, much as uh, Christian you know, was released from the Doubting Castle at midnight, it talks about. So he might have been thinking about that as well. It's interesting that you know, when he puts these little tidbits in there, you know, Wednesday to Saturday, 
um, and midnight and all that, uh, what exactly you know, Bunyan was trying to tell us. But what we do know is that because he left on that Saturday night and then he journeyed to the Delectable Mountains, he was there on what day? What day would it be? Anybody know what? Wow, this, this crowd is really subdued. The day that comes after Saturday. <laughs> Sunday, yes. Or as Bunyan would have called it, what? And what Joel called it this morning? Lord's the Lord's Day. That's right. That's what he would have called it, the Lord's Day. Okay, so the Delectable Mountains, you know, they sound uh, very nice, of course. Uh, lots of good descriptions there. It talks about the, the vineyards, the fruits of all sorts, the flowers, the springs, and the fountains. You know, very delectable to behold. So a nice place, a lot of beauty. Um, it looks great. So there are, <clears throat> how many shepherds are there? Three. I put three down there. <laughs> But there's four, because we know their names. Anybody remember their names, if you've read this? You get really super extra credit if you know the names. It's knowledge, experience, watchful, and sincere. So there was actually four shepherds. I put three, I think, because I was thinking of the three uh, words used to describe elder, which we're going to talk about later. That was in my mind, but there's four. And we know their names, knowledge, experience, watchful, and sincere. So what do the Delectable Mountains represent, do you think? What are they speaking of? This place of beauty. I don't know how many of you guys have read it uh, ahead of time. Um, but this place of beauty, this place of nice fruits and all that. There's a couple of different thoughts. Um, one is that it could represent mature believers in our walk as we mature, uh, we grow. Uh, we become spiritually mature. We see these fruits and um, these great things, you know, that develop in our lives. And we begin to mature as believers and deepen in our understanding of the word and those kinds of things. Um, you see the little glimpses of, of Emmanuel's land that it talks about there uh, in the previous section. Um, you know, small little glimpses of heaven, of course, of, of the life that we have to look forward to. Another possibility is that the Delectable Mountains represent the church, and uh, which is why I mentioned it, it has a nice tie back to Palace Beautiful, and interesting that he would see the Delectable Mountains off in the distance to the, which direction? South. To the south, yeah, that's very important for some reason. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> Bunyan meant something by that. Um, and so he saw the, the Delectable Mountains there to the south, and uh, you know, so you see a tie-in together. So I think it probably represents the church. And Bunyan, as I mentioned, he talked a lot about the church and had a great affection and fondness for the church. So and as we mentioned, it's happening uh, on the Lord's Day. And so what do we see in the Delectable Mountains? Well, we see the pattern uh, of the Lord's Day. We see, um, you know, the, the idea of the church and, and the people are there. Uh, the people that we meet there are the four shepherds, and then we'll see some other things going on and some other bad things um, within the Delectable Mountains. And as we talk about those, just kind of keep in mind that Bunyan and the Puritans in general, you know, Bunyan was in the, the 1600s, of course, um, you know, not, not too long after, uh, you know, Luther and Calvin and all those guys and the, the Protestant Reformation. Um, 
but uh, you know, in, in their theology, they definitely saw uh, a lot of pitfalls. You know, even within the church, there is a lot of um, you know a lot of people and a lot of things within the church that that shouldn't be there. You know, and so even though the church is delectable and beautiful, we'll see that there's a lot of negative things that happen uh, in the context of the church as well. Because you know, the, the truth is that while we're on this earth. Um, you know, of course, the, the evil one, you know, and Satan and uh, the things of darkness have uh, a lot of sway. You know, Lord, the Lord obviously has won the final victory, but we live here in a fallen world that's fallen uh, in many ways. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of dark things, and the church is, is no different, and it can get infected by, by lots of things. And Bunyan definitely saw um, the possibilities of that. So we see the pattern of the, the Lord's Day here. Um, you know, we talk a little bit, when we talk about the Lord's Day and his, he was working out um, his ecclesiology. So ecclesiology, uh, meaning, anybody know what that word means, ecclesiology? Another word for the day. Yeah, the, the way church is operated, right, from the, from the Greek word ecclesia. So it's basically how churches are, are governed and how they're run and organized and those kinds of things. So he's working that out. He's at a nonconformist church. So he's kind of, uh, you know, away from the mainstream uh, denominations. And, you know, of course, he was going against uh, the government. So that got him, you know, put into prison. He wasn't teaching, you know, exactly what he's supposed to be teaching. You know, I, I see some parallels to this church, you know, to, to Grace Covenant. You know, it's a Reformed Baptist church. And uh, you don't see a lot of those, and even in this area, you know, there's not many churches. We're not one uh, cookie-cutter church of many. We're kind of a unique church here um, with the theology and the things that are taught here. So he's, he's working through uh, his ecclesiology um, and church governance. Um, of course, we see the shepherds there, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about them. But uh, those that espouse covenant theology, like think of Presbyterians, they see a lot of continuity between the Old Testament and the New. You know, for example, um, the Sabbath. Anybody know what is the, in the covenant theology, you know, Presbyterian mindset, what does the Sabbath kind of turn into in the New Testament? How is it carried forward in the New Testament? The idea of the Sabbath, the day of resting. So they would see, and Bunyan would see the Sabbath carrying forward as the Lord's Day. So they would, they kind of, instead of having the, the Jewish Sabbath on the Saturday, the uh, final day of the week, they would see the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, as kind of the Sabbath within the church. So uh, the Sabbath with, within the New Testament. And then they would see uh, circumcision. We see that in the Old Testament, the idea of kind of a marking uh, the babies, you know, in that case, the male babies, um, and, you know, identifying them as part of the Jewish community, they would see that carried forward in the church today um, through what? Anybody know? Infant baptism. Infant baptism, right. So you see that that practice carried forward and that continuity, that covenant theology, continuity type of idea. Of course, that's something that this church uh, does not teach um, that we believe that in the believer's baptism rather than in infant baptism. Um, so, and you see that, you know, just the idea of one day and seven set apart for the worship of God, you see that in the Sabbath. 
You see that also uh, in the Lord's Day. So <clears throat> he also saw the Lord's Day. Um, there's a concept called the, the market day for the soul, which is something that we don't hear about as much today. But it was kind of the idea that you went to church, you know, you picked up uh, the things that you needed for your soul, and you would go to church, and uh, um, and you would you would get those things that you needed. And many times, and that kind of part of the reason that they thought this way is because um, many times, I don't know if you guys have ever gone to Walmart, um, and they, they say that at Walmart, this is back in the old days when it was good, but uh, if they don't have it, you don't need it. So uh, that's your slogan for Walmart. But <clears throat> you think if you go to, to some shopping place, and a lot of times you'll come back with things that, um, that you didn't intend to get, right? You find, find things. This happens to me at the trade days, especially when I go by the uh, little tool area, and they have the Ryobi tools out there. Like the last time I was there, was, they had a, a weed whacker, and my weed wha- all my weed whackers keep breaking down. <clears throat> so I got an electric one um, that's 40 volts. So, um, you know, if it's not 40 volts, just guys, you're not working. So just want to <laughs> let you know that. And uh, it's great. So I, I didn't go there to get anything, but I, I ended up coming home with stuff. And so that's kind of how they thought, saw this idea of the market day of the soul, that you would go to church, and even things that you didn't realize that you needed, you would come home with. And you would come home with that encouragement and, uh, and you know, the blessings, and you would receive those things at the church. Okay. <clears throat> so then moving on to the shepherds, what do the shepherds represent? Very quiet crowd. Come on, I know some of you guys are sitting there. Church. Ready to answer. Elders. Elders, right. Yeah, it, the church, the delectable mountains would kind of be a picture of the church with the context of the idea of the church. You've got the shepherds, uh, these four guys um, that would represent the elders of the church, the, the leaders, the teachers, those that are taking care of the church. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, they're... They're busy, the shepherds are busy doing what? They're feeding the flock, right? They're out there feeding them and, and taking care of them. Um, and, you know, what is the job of the elders in the church? You know, it's, it's of course, to feed the flock, to take care of the flock. There's many jobs. Um, just as a, a, you know, kind of going along with this topic and the church governance, ecclesiology, the thing that Bunyan was kind of worked through, um, who knows how many offices there are within the church established in the Bible? Well, how many official positions are there supposed to be within the church? Two. So, right. As far as leadership positions, two, right? And that would be what? Deacons, deacons and elders. Deacons and elders, right. You see, deacons and elders, there's a lot of debate about this. You know, if you ask people from other denominations, you might get different answers. It's interesting the way different churches do it, like, you know, I went to a Southern Baptist church for many years, and there the deacons are the, the elders. Like the deacons are the leaders of the church, the ones that run it. I don't think they have elders. And, and then other churches, you know, like Grace Community, MacArthur's Church, they have 700 deacons. So basically everyone that serves in children's ministry, everyone that does everything is called a deacon. So uh, there's a lot of different ideas about it, but there's two offices, and it talks about this in First Timothy um, and Titus as well. 
there's elder and deacon and gives the qualification for those. Um, and, you know, that, that you can talk sometime about the different roles, but, you know, the elders are kind of the overseers, the, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the church, and the deacons are the ones, you know, we kind of think of the hands and feet. Those, they're still leaders, they're still very important leaders, um, but they're doing the practical ministry. And Acts ch- chapter 6, you know, kind of alludes to that, so you can read through that if you're interested. Um, but the elders, um, they have diff- several different functions, and that's who um, Bunyan kind of seems to be focusing on here. And, of course, Bunyan himself was an elder. Um, he was the pastor there of the church, um, Bedford Baptist Church. Um, I forget the name of the town. I mentioned it the last time I taught here, uh, but it was somewhere there in England. Um, so the shepherds represent the elders of the church. And interestingly, in the Bible, there's a few different uh, words that are used to describe um, the elders of the church. So someone read for me First uh, Peter 5, verses 1 and 2. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Okay. It always amazes me how quickly people get to those verses. You know, so fast. I'm usually there. Like, I'm by the time the person finishes reading, it's usually about when I find it when I'm out there. Uh, so yeah, in that verse in First Peter five, you see there uh, a few different terms are used. How many different terms? And those two verses, do you think, were used to describe the position of elder? How many different Greek words? You guys all know Greek, I'm assuming. We're in the Bible Belt, so. How many different words do you think are used to describe elder in that passage? Different Greek words. There's three different Greek words that were used in that little passage. Which is a, a great little passage uh, in, in thinking about the job of the elders, the, the, the position of the elders. The one was episkopos, that's one of the Greek words, uh, which means overseer or bishop. I don't know if you've ever been to a church where they have a bishop that uh, leads the church, but they're called you know, bishop so-and-so. Um, that, that word, there's Episcopalian church, um, which I, I think is mostly associated with England, but that's... Um, that's, pre- that's based on the idea of the overseer, the bishop. There's also the, the word presbyteros, which is used there, um, which is elder or ruler, kind of the idea of uh, just being the one that's in, you know, in charge. So, sort of similar to episcopos, but a little bit more spiritually. One's more probably organizationally minded, and one's a little bit more spiritually minded, the presbyteros. Of course, we see the Presbyterian uh, denomination, which has kind of taken that word on. Um, and then the third word is poimen, poimanos, um, <clears throat> which means pastor or shepherd. Um, and so the pastor, the idea, you know, think of a pasture, grass, it just means grass. And uh, the pastor, kind of like these shepherds, is the one out there feeding the flock. So these, it kind of describes in that passage in First Peter the different roles of the elder in the church, the different jobs that they have to do. You know, shepherd, shepherd the flock of God, which would be that word, poimon, or, or pastor. You know, of course, we use these different words um, in the church. Um, we think of pastor within at least 
you know, kind of our denominational circles as the, the ones that are on staff, the ones that are full-time in ministry. We call them, at least that's when I grew up, we would call them the pastor. The other leaders would be called the elders. But really, they're all the same. It's the same office, the same role. Um, and all the elders are able to teach. Um, it's one of the qualifications. So they can all teach, but typically most churches have, you know, one that teaches most often a teaching elder. Uh, but it's the same qualification, it's the same role within the church. Um, so, <clears throat> and we call the, the, church, the elders that work outside the church lay elders, I guess because they're, they're laymen. Um, they're just people that are working full-time um, and not necessarily uh, making their living at the church full-time. So, um, but the, the elder is the pastor, and Bunyan's kind of drawing attention to this, the role of the shepherd and caring <clears throat> for the people and those kind of things. Um, so it's, it's an interesting, you know, take and, uh, and thinking through how the church is organized and how the church is run. And, of course, this all flows from Bunyan's love for the local church. So at Christian and Hopeful find themselves near these three hills, um, two of which have warning signs of danger, you know, go this way and go that way. We saw some of these uh, previously. Um, you know, in the Slough of Despond, Christian asks uh, Evangelist why there was no signs posted, you know, telling him not to go that way and those kinds of things. Um, so we've seen uh, that many along the way end up giving up, end up going home. Um, <clears throat> like obstinate and pliable and the section that I did uh, last time they went with them a little ways, obstinate, bolted, and went back uh, pretty quickly. And then um, pliable, hung around for a little while, but then he ended up, as soon as the going got tough, he was out of there. Um, so, <clears throat> and we see that the three that were at the foot of the cross, they were sleeping, didn't see the warnings of danger. Um, and he's talking here, you know, about these problems that you have within the church and the fact that within the church, uh, you're going to have, um, those within the church that are not believers, you know, that those that amongst us, that when times get tough, like we talked about the parable of the sower, times get tough and, uh, and then they, they bolt. And so he's talking about the idea of the perseverance of the saints. Um, if any of you have heard that little acronym TULIP, you know, I think the, the Dutch came up with because they love tulips, you know, it's a tulip country. Um, you know, the total depravity, unconditional election, uh, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and then perseverance of the saints is the final, the P of the TULIP acronym. Um, so he's talking here about that, you know, just the idea that those like Christian uh, are going to persevere till the end, and many are going to kind of fall away. So he gets to this hill uh, called Errors, Error, and uh, it brought about the death of two people that are mentioned. Hymenaeus and, and Philetus, which I guess is how you say it. This is, of course, a reference to 2 Timothy 2, uh, 17 and 18. Um, but uh, someone read for us uh, 2 Timothy 2, and we'll start at verse 15, 15 to 18. 2 Timothy 2, 15 to 18, if you're brave enough. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. All right, so you see here Hymenaeus and Philetus. Do you want to be like them? Raise your hand if you, they're your, your example. Who do you want to be like? No, they're bad. So he's, he's, uh, Bunyan's using these two guys as an example on the Hill of Air, people that are bad. And of course, they're saying that the resurrection has already passed, kind of like um, what other group of people prominent in Jesus' uh, ministry denied the resurrection? The Sadducees, right. So the Sadducees denied the resurrection, the, denied the fact that we, there's another life, you know, that we can go and, and we'll die in these earthly bodies and we'll be resurrected to eternal life. They deny that, which to me is kind of a big bummer. I mean, to think that there's no resurrection, there's nothing to look forward to. I mean, that, that doesn't make me, not that that is, determines if it's right or wrong, it's just that's kind of a sad way to think, which is why they were sad. Um, so you see here the error of those guys. Um, you can be a professing believer and live and be uh, very involved in the church and not be one of the elect, right? So you cannot be someone that God has chosen and elected. Who amongst the disciples would fit that description? Judas, right? Did, they, did the other disciples know when Jesus said, hey, one of you is going to betray me? Did they know who it was? No, no they didn't. They were, what did they say? They said, is it I? Is it I? They didn't know. You would think if, you know, if it was obvious, it was easy to figure it out, they would have said, ah, it's obviously him. The guy with the money bags that didn't want to give to the, uh, or wanted to give all the money, you know, to the poor and didn't want the, didn't like the perfume, uh, the expensive perfume that Mary was using, those kinds of things. You, yeah, it's got to be. They didn't know. And that's interesting, you know, even within our midst, there can be people that very much look like believers, very much act like believers, and there's a lot of reasons for people to be in the church, and a lot of people, of course, probably just think uh, that, that they are believers, and they're not. Um, you see there in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus uh, talked about that as well, you know, there's going to be those that, um, those that said, hey, I, I, you know, cast out demons in your name, and I did everything in your name, and and he's going to say, I never knew you. And so, um, but how do we know that we are the elect? How do you know that you're saved? Fruit. Yeah, it's the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. We see that in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, and Paul talks about it quite a bit. You can see that there's, he describes the life of a believer and the life and the fruits that will come out. Um, and he describes also the fruits of darkness, right? The fruits of righteousness and the fruits of of darkness, and you can look at those and see that your life is being transformed. Romans 12, 1 and 2 as well, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind as we read scripture. Your life will be transformed. That transformation that's happening, you best can see the transformation within yourself because you, you kind of know your own heart, not totally because our hearts are wicked, but um, you see the transformation within your own life, and it's it's not about living perfectly or doing all the right things, because that would be the doctrine of the Pharisees. It's about wanting, you know, and, and desiring. I often kind of think of uh, Saul and uh, how he was confronted. Saul, back in the Old Testament, the king of Israel, he was confronted over his sin and the things he was doing wrong. What was his response? Response of pride and, and arrogance and not changing. And then you see David confronted by Nathan the prophet. 
And what was David's response? He was cut to the heart. He was broken. He recognized his sin. And to me, that, that kind of demonstrates the response that someone that's saved, you know, a true believer would have uh, to sin in their life. So um, we see there, as they continue on, um, there's a, a fearful precipice on the other side uh, of the hill called Error. Um, and so you see at the fearful, fearful precipice, there's all these uh, um, bad things that are happening. He goes there to the next hill, the hill called Caution, and he sees these blind men walking around uh, among the tombs. And you kind of think of this, there's a bunch of people just walking around and feeling, and they're all, amongst all of these uh, tombs, tombstones and things like that. They were blinded, of course, um, by the giant despair there uh, in the castle. So then the shepherds also show uh, Christian and Hopeful um, a little door on the side of the hill. Anybody remember what's beyond the door, what's inside this door? So inside the door, there's a byway to hell. And inside of this uh, byway here, you hear tormented cries and the smell of brimstone. um, You know, and who enters by the door? The hypocrites. Right, those that uh, those that I think <clears throat> Bunyan would see as those within the church that you know claim and profess to be believers, but they're not. He also kind of reminds me of the the parable that Jesus taught the wheat and the tares, right? And what's the message of that is that you've got these tares amongst the wheat that are all meshed in together, and only he, you know, at the end was able to separate them. So they're, they're growing amongst. There's always there. Uh, even within the church, and, and Bunyan certainly uh, saw that and believed that, and that was common thinking in his time. So this door is seen, you know, at a very late stage in the journey. You know, even nearing the end of the journey, you know, some people can fall away, you know, and they can, they can turn away from the true path, those that were never truly believers. They're never truly with Christ. Um, you know, people can thrive within the church for many years and be believers. If any of you guys know who Josh Harris is, uh, he's someone, you know, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, that book, he was very popular within the church and very prominent, and uh, everyone was like, wow, this guy's great. He, he was pastor of a very large uh, denomination, uh, or church within a denomination, and, and very successful in ministry, and today he's, you know, he's renounced his faith. He, he no longer says he's a Christian, so you see this People, even people in, in high places and prominent positions, can fall away and can uh, and, and turn. But those people were never part of the body. They were never really believers. And it's it's kind of sobering and scary. But that's kind of the point that Bunyan wants to make here: is be sober-minded and be be aware of this. You know, we don't want to just have uh, the rose-colored glasses, so to speak, and and just be naive and thinking that that's not the case. It is the case. And we want to be on the lookout, you know, as Paul warned us, Jesus warned us for false teachings, for false doctrines. And and that's one of the the jobs, of course, of the elders within the church, right? To be on the lookout for false teachings and be on the lookout for those that want to divide and those that want to sow discord and sow uh, mischief and things like that within the church in order to break it and divide it. Because, of course, the enemy is constantly working to try and tear down the church and tear down the fellowship of believers, which is also why we need one another so much. You know, we need to be together with other believers because without that, um, you know, we're not going to be able to, uh, to, 
to persevere. Well, we'll be able to persevere because it's, it's God that chose us, but we're just going to suffer in our walk. We're not going to be able to thrive in the way that we ought to. So we see here Christian and Hopeful saw um, three very negative things. The, the steep precipice, this big cliff uh, that goes down, and then beyond that they saw the tombstone with the blind men walking around, and then they saw the door in the side of the hill, and there's lots of these things. It's just sober-minded. You know, we need to be sober-minded about the church and recognize that uh, there, there is a lot of mischief and there's a lot of, um, you know, people within the church that, um, that will do harm to the church. <clears throat> so it's an allegory of the, of the Lord's day, um, the Delectable Mountains here. He talks a little bit about the perspective glass, which helps you to see better. Um, that, like a telescope or binoculars, he's talking about the perspective glass that he uses to be able to see those men that are down by the tombstones and all that, which is, you know, probably an allusion to God's word. You know, God's word is that, that lens, that, that glass, that telescope that allows us to see the truth, you know, and, and Paul talks about it being a mirror uh, that shows us ourselves so we can see ourselves more clearly. Um, and sometimes um, <clears throat> with the help of the church, you know, and gathering on the Lord's day, we we can get a tiny little glimpse of heaven, of Emmanuel's land. We get a tiny little glimpse of seeing what it will be like to fellowship in heaven. So there's a lot of hope there. Um, but again, his, uh, his love of the Lord's Day. And you have to remember that in Bunyan's time, coming to church week to week was a time when you got to partake of God's word. So most people probably didn't have a Bible uh, in their house. You know, the, the Reformation... Was, was sparked, you know, in large part by the printing press, the Gutenberg Bible and the Gutenberg press and all that that allowed the Bible to be copied. But most people probably didn't have one in their house, and most people probably couldn't read one if they did have one. And so church was the only time during the week where they got to hear the Word of God. And so what a blessing and what a, what a treasure. Of course, we're blessed um, much more because we... Uh, you know, we're able to, most of us have Bibles, uh, most of us have multiple Bibles, and we're able to read it whenever we want for the most part. So, um, you know, it's a one, wonderful, meaningful day uh, to, to gather together with other believers. And Bunyan truly loved uh, the church. Um, after we leave the Delectable Mountains, then the pilgrims encounter uh, a man named Ignorance. And so we see a little bit there talked about him. And ignorance was a man uh, that did all the right things. He prayed, fasted, tithed, gave alms. You know, but his heart was not with the Lord. Who does that remind you of in, in the New Testament? Anyone? And a group? Yeah, he prayed. Yeah, the Pharisees. He prayed and he tithed and he did all the right things. So, you know... Um, Christian questions, you know, how he's going to get to the celestial city without going through the wicked gate. Uh, he questions ignorance about that. So I thought that was interesting that he asked ignorant, ignorance, how, do, how are you going to get to the celestial city even though you, ha you didn't go through the wicked gate, which kind of makes me think the wicked gate was the place where he was saved. But, but anyhow, I think that's what you said too, right? There's Dennis that says, well, yeah, it's not necessarily. But yeah, there's a debate about that. But he references back here to the wicked gate. Um, you know, Christian references Proverbs, you know, 26, 12, there's more hope for a fool 
than for him referring to rig, uh, ignorance. And he's highlighting the foolishness of the Pharisees. So as we finish off this journey, getting to the celestial city, he kind of makes this point real quickly about ignorance that, you know, getting there through the, the path of the Pharisees, the path of uh, works, you know, righteousness, of thinking that you're going to work your way into heaven, you're going to please God through your good works um, and, uh, and earn, you know, salvation, earn uh, favor with God by doing those things is the wrong path. So he wants to make sure that we realize the pitfalls, that we see all of these things to avoid. Um, but, you know, he loved the Lord's Day. He loved the gathering together with the saints, the marketplace, um, you know, the marketplace for the church, so to speak, which is, you know, an interesting concept that we don't really think about much today, but a place where we can come and, and have those. And I kind of think about it, you know, when we come to church, um, we hear the teaching. There might be something in the teaching that really gets us, uh, really speaks to us. There might be something in the worship. But I think, too, about the little conversations that just happen. You know, something that, you know, wouldn't happen in an online church, you know, that a lot of people are in favor of. You're just not going to run into people and talk to people. And, and they might say that one thing that you just needed to hear that day. You know, you just needed that encouragement. The Lord will use other people in your lives if we're gathered together. But we have to be gathered together, which I thought was fitting because Joel um, just talked about that when he was teaching through Hebrews chapter 10, didn't he, about the gathering together of the church. So we'll finish off. Uh, someone read for us Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. It's on your outline there. All right. Thanks, Paul. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. All right. Praise God. Let me pray. Dear Lord, just thank you for this day, and thank you for this teaching through the Pilgrim's Progress and the teaching through your word and the encouragement that is brought to us by the church, Lord, and uh, that you have instituted, Lord. You have ordained this body, Lord. The organization of it is yours, Lord, and elders and deacons is your idea, Lord. Uh, not forsaking, uh, coming together uh, at least once a week, uh, that's your idea, Lord, and we just thank you for that, and may we be a people that wants to live these things out and wants to participate um, in the body and... Uh, and just give glory to you and, and all of these things. And we thank you and we praise you. Amen. Amen.